has been a blessing to bring God's word from Malachi every time I've had a chance to preach in the afternoon. And today we come to this portion where we are considering uh, these six uh, verses. This is the indictment of the Lord. He says in verse 17 of Malachi 2, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, we wearied him by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the God of justice behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord then the offering of Jude and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days then I will draw near to you for judgment I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Please uh, hear the word of God. I want to bring a message on the messenger of the Lord. A story is told in the Greek mythology and philosophy of a man called Diogenes. That man, Diogenes, he walked around with a lamp late during the day. And if you asked him, Mr. Diogenes, why do you walk around? It's like someone walking with a torch uh, during the day. And you asked him, why do you have a lamp during the day? And he said, I am looking for a man. And he meant he was looking for a honest man. And he said, all men are hypocrites. No one lives up to what he should be. So, Mr. Diogenes, not bother to build a house. He sometimes didn't bother to wear clothes, if that's what he felt like. Um, he, he wasn't, he just, whatever he wanted to do is what he did. And he said there was no man like him. It's especially said that... Uh, Alexander the Great was told about this man and he went to see him and uh, because he lived in a barrel or in a pot, uh, Alexander 
stood by the entrance of his port and asked him, is there any favor I can do you, Mr. Diogenes? And he said, yes, stop obstructing the sun. And that was it. I mean, that's what you'd ask the great Alexander. Now, we call such people cynical. They do not live like everyone else, and they think that everyone else is wrong and they are right. But you might say that God's people can never be like that. Look at verse 17. What were they saying? When God told them that they had wearied them, wearied him with their wounds, what did they say? How have we wearied him? Everyone who does evil is good, they were saying. And they were saying that everyone who does evil is good in your sight, O God. And that God delights in them. They even went to the extent of asking, where is the God of justice? In other words, they did not see God. These people said that God had abandoned his course in creation and had left the world to work out its own destiny unfettered. But the prophet shows that, it, that this attitude was irreverent and unjustified. There is no doubt that the Lord had not gone back on his responsibilities as God, the creator. The Lord will first send his messenger who will prepare the way for him. Then he will come to his temple suddenly. Then he will draw near to them. Then the prophet turns to them and asks them, who will endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? So the seeming delay in acting on their behalf was not caused by his indifference, by God's indifference, but their own indifference. And when the Lord comes, he will be swift in judgment for their rebellion. He would test and purify his people so that they would serve him acceptably. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 2 to 4. Those who lived with no regard for his righteousness, they must be warned and live accordingly. And the Lord cures this cynicism by sending two messages. One to prepare the way for the second, who is the messenger of the covenant. And this is a reference to John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord Jesus himself, who is here called the, the messenger of the covenant. So when I say that this is a message about the messenger of the covenant, I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all then, I have five things to say. And the first one is, notice the rebellion of the people there in verse 17. Malachi uses a very interesting device of accusation. And then there is counter-accusation. He then moves to cite the evidence for the first accusation, followed by a longer comment on the situation. That's how he does it. 
This incidentally shows that verse 17 of Malachi 2 is to be read with the verses that come after, not the ones that come before. And so the ESV division is correct. And this is where the chapter divisions are not always very proper. You know that the person who did chapter divisions was on a horseback. You know that. So, so yeah, he was on horseback as he did the, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. He was doing it as kind of a pastime. So the chapter numbers and the verses are not inspired. They are not at all. So then, there is the accusation. What is the accusation? Wearing the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You refers to the community as a whole. And as you will look in, uh, you'll find in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, uh, that will reveal that not all people in Malachi's day displayed this critical attitude. The words they had uttered were presumably not those of prayer. They were not praying to God. They were not pleading with God. They were not pleading for his promise. They were not giving him no rest till he acted. It was not praise to the Lord. Rather, they were cynical words. They were being quarrelsome in complaints, whining and pouting that the Almighty Lord had not lived up to his promises. They deserved better for him, or so they thought. They thought that God should have treated them better. You've had people when their loved one has passed on, they weep and well and they ask God, why, why, why? That's a kind of spirit being criticized by the word of God. That word wearied usually refers to the exhaustion that comes from hard work. The creator of the ends of the earth who does not grow tired or weary from all that he does, according to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, says here that he is wearied by the persistent unbelief and sin of his people. Do not cause the Lord God to be weary because of your evil, or because of your murmuring, or because of your complaining. You remember that that's one of the reasons why the people of Israel were constantly being punished in the wilderness because of their complaining and murmuring spirit, questioning God and thinking that they knew better how to manage things than God. That cynical spirit needs to go because it leads to complaining and murmuring in life. As you begin the new year, you should be saying, be gone murmuring, be gone complaining, be gone unbelief, be gone in a cynical spirit. And then secondly, listen to their response. When God said, you weary me with your words, what did they say? They didn't say, please God be merciful to us and forgive us for wearying you with our words. They didn't say that. What did they say? 
table evidence. If we have wearied you, show us. Prove. That's a counter accusation. But you say, how, how have we wearied him? How? How show us? How have we wearied the Lord? They respond with amazement, feigning ignorance, and of doing as the accusation states. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So certain were they that the accusation could not possibly be true, of such as they were, and they request more specific information and evidence. So confident that Jehovah's charge cannot be maintained or sustained in detail. And now God, condescending, comes to them and he says, Deny this. Have you not said, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Have you not said that God delights in them? Have you not asked, where is the God of justice? So two related complaints that the people have about God are brought out into the open. Here they claimed God is unrighteous. How so? Because he accepted in his sight everyone who does evil such that the Lord delights in them. Now, the identity of the people who perpetrated the evil in the sight of Yahweh is not clear. But what is clear is that God approves evil, or so they say it. It could be that there were some within the covenant community who are prospering through corrupt means. And they said, well, see, God is, God is approving of them. You remember Asaph in uh, Psalm 73 had seen the prosperity of the wicked. They had seemed to him always carefree, living in wickedness, but also living in wealth. It seemed like they had God's approval. But he kept looking. And the Bible says that when he went to the sanctuary and looked and considered their end, what did he find out? They've been put on a slippery ground. Soon their end will be destruction. How stupid this envy had been, he says in Psalm 73 verse 22. And how greatly blessed he was in having God as his own portion forever. He said, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what he said. Whom have I in heaven but you, he said. So the people Malachi describes had also seen the prosperity of the wicked possibly, and they had blasphemously concluded that this was what God approved of. Because when you consider the word pleased with them, it is strongly emphasized in the Hebrew being contrasted with an implicit with us. You are pleased with them despite their wickedness and look at us. Look at us. What about us? What have you done? They were saying. And they were in effect saying, God is not pleased with our offerings 
but with the evildoer's wickedness. We have not been wearing him with our words. He has been wearing us with his ways, they were saying. It's not what we expect, they were, were thinking. That's not all. They were also insinuating injustice on God's part. Because the Bible says, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Present an alternative. That was the thought running through their minds. If God was not unrighteous, they said, then he does not exist. For if he did, then where, where is he? This is the thinking of any atheist. This is asserting that God was no longer interested in what was happening or that God approved injustice or God did not care or God did not exist. Their experience seemed to confirm that the law, that the truth, that the law of retribution was not functioning anymore was true. God had failed to punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. And so to threaten woe to the wicked, disasters upon them, they will be paid back for what their hands have done, as in Isaiah 3.11, is nothing but empty words. If nothing happens. And of course, if one argues that sinners can act with impunity, and it is easier to fail to fall into line with their conduct uh, with their conduct when the sentence of a crime is not quickly carried out the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong ecclesiastes 8:11 says they could approach the god of justice without hesitation and with brazenness retorting back to him Now, this is also true of our politics today. You know, people voted in the current regime with a lot of expectation and hope. And they thought that the president will quickly sweep away all the corrupt people. But as soon as we looked at his cabinet, we knew oh, nothing is going to happen. Then years, uh, I mean, months have gone and now people are saying, come on. Really, you didn't mean anything you said, and they don't believe anymore whatever he says. But we cannot treat God like that. Because once upon a time there was a prophet called Habakkuk. He looked at what was happening amongst God's people. And he said, God, why do you look at evil idly? In other words, you seem uninterested in what's happening amongst your own people. And then God said, that's what you think? Wait a minute. I am brewing something. And what? When you hear of it, you will not believe. Your ears will tingle. Because what I'm doing is that I am preparing the Chaldeans. That strong and wicked people and they will come and they will trample down Israel like dust. Habakkuk was like, no, 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 you can't do that. There is no way you can do that. 
Do you not know those people are way more wicked than we are? I mean, you need to do something about us. Surely not using Babylonia. And God says, oh yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And when, when I'm done with the, Babil with the Israelites, I will deal with the Babylonians too. So, God is not our age mate, is what we say. He will do what he wants to do his own way. And it's wrong for us to ask, we, we, what are we? But we are the work of his hands. We are like pots. How can, how can the pot turn around and ask the potter, why have you made me like this? Such a long neck, big belly. Why have you made us like this? The pot cannot do that. So in the same way, we cannot ask God questions. He has the prerogative to do with whoever, however he wants. He is God. And for thinking like that, you weary God. When you ask God questions that show more your ignorance and your arrogance, you expose your own wickedness and not God's injustice or unrighteousness. We need to be very careful. God cannot be wrong in all that he does. Everything that God does for you or for us individually or as a family or as a nation is the right thing. I've heard some people say, well, well, Kenyans made a serious mistake electing Mr. Ruto to be our president. No, 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 you did not. That's precisely whom God wanted for us as our president for such a time as now. And, and, and it's God's will for us to go through what we are going through. And so how do we handle it? How do we deal with what God is doing? Of course, we are to approach it with thanksgiving. And uh, we are to pray for deliverance. But we must not question the wisdom of God in doing it. Secondly, look at how God dealt with the, Mal uh, the people of Malachi's day and what he told them. He told them that the Lord, Yahweh, will send the messenger. And he is himself speaking. God says, behold, I, Yahweh, send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. You know, what this means is that even where we look at our current situation and it feels like God is doing nothing about it, the fact that in the past God did something about the situations at the time shows that even right now God is not sitting idly. He knows what he is doing. So look at this situation. What did he tell them? He said that he will send a messenger who will prepare the way for him. Now, question for you. Did he send that messenger? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He says, see or behold. That demands that attention to be focused on the Lord. He alone is in control of what will happen and will first of all send his messenger. A messenger is usually a reference to human messengers who are used to carry God's messages or messages even between individuals. 
The, the, the term sometimes is used of God's prophets, whom he sent as his representatives to his people. Bring his word to them. The term is once applied of uh, applied to the priests, chapter 2, verse 7. Other times the word is found, uh, where the word is found, it's translated angel. Because the messengers are superhuman in the sense that they bear God's message. One third of these angelic occurrences refer to finite created messages whom the Lord employs. And two thirds are to the individuals known as the angel, the, the individual known as the angel of the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, or what we call the orphanies in the Old Testament of Christ. The Lord identified this messenger as fulfilled in John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. They are also in Luke chapter 7, verse 27. The imagery is drawn from the practice of ancient kings who would inform their subjects in a particular province or city within their empire that they were about to come on a state visit so that adequate arrangements might be made. This would include preparing the way. In other words, remember those of you who are older, if the late president Moy said that he was visiting your village, oh, you would be clapping because the runes will be graded and water will be poured on those graded runes and everything will be made ready for the president to come. That's what we see here. The royal procession removing any obstacle, anything to impede progress so that the royal procession can have its, its way and the king may arrive. It would thus be straight, level, free of obstacle in preparation. And who is going to do this? It's my messenger. And he will be the forerunner, preparing the way before me. And we all know that that's what John the Baptist did. And Jesus Christ himself said that this was John the Baptist quoting this verse. Provided the preparation for Christ's ministry. But to realize that the fact that such a forerunner was necessary was a warning to the people of Malachi's day that whatever they might think, they were not ready for the arrival of their king, whom they were saying was not coming at all. You read 2 Peter 3 and, and you listen to the scoffers saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since our fathers existed, he's been saying that he's coming. He hasn't come. Really, he isn't coming. And so you hear people say, you will wait until Christ returns. They are scoffers. When you hear that phrase, don't love. When you hear someone say, you will wait until Christ returns return. Please don't laugh because he is scoffing the word of God, the promise of God, and he is doing that in, in, in a uh, blasphemous, irreverent manner. Because every time God has promised something, 
he fulfills it every single time. Now, in chapter 3, verse 1b, we read, As the Lord whom you seek, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The suddenly is not immediately, but surprisingly or unexpectedly. That's how he's going to come, like a thief. Suddenly. It's not secretly. It is unexpectedly. Once the foreigner has done his work, the king of kings, who is Yahweh, will follow. The word used is Adonai, which picks up the imagery of a visiting king by pointing to God as a sovereign ruler, the one who has dominion, authority, and ownership. And there is no doubt that uh, when the word is used with the article, it refers to the Lord, Yahweh, that is um, the king, Jehovah, not some other royal figure. He is the one who says he will send my messenger ahead of him. And it is to his temple that he comes to rule as king and dispense the justice which they had been claimed was lacking in verse 17. But the use of Adonai allows this to be a reference to Christ. This has already been done by David in Psalm 110, where he said, The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. Here it is the Lord Almighty, the Father, who is speaking of his coming, and yet refers to one who is distinct from him, and one with him, the Son. This is none other than the Messiah, who is both God and man at the same time. And you notice that people are seeking the appearance of the Lord. And they associated his coming with the defeat of their enemies and their own advance, waiting for the fulfillment of prophecies such as Isaiah 2, 2 to 4 and Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 to 9. But in their precious, uh, in their in their special self-confidence, they failed to see. They were not ready for the Lord's presence in his temple. They were rather like the people of Amos' day who were waiting the day for the day of the Lord where he would intervene in power. Uh, they thought it would be for their blessing. But the prophet warned them and he said, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness and not light. They did not see how unacceptable their conduct was to God, no matter how many offerings they brought, if justice and righteousness did not prevail in their blood. So too, the people of Malachi's day had to learn that the smug contentment of their self-righteousness would not survive the scrutiny of God's justice. And what are the characteristics of the messenger? Verse 2 to 3. The Bible says, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is not an introduction of a third person whose coming is to be anticipated. It's not, it's 
not the same individual as the previously mentioned messenger who was to prepare the way as a foreigner. This messenger is to be identified with the Lord of whom the, mes uh, the messenger or the angel was going to prepare the way. But he is the messenger of the covenant as he describes himself further. The phrase message of the covenant is, is found only here in the world of the Bible. But it's similar to the angel of the Lord. Because you notice that it's, it's a messenger. The message of the Lord is Lord all capitalized. So this title message of the covenant primarily points to his prophetic office. His teaching was with unparalleled authority. And that's exactly what we know of Christ's ministry. He taught as one with authority, not like the Pharisees. And so the Bible asks a question, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Would the people be ready for the coming of Jehovah? The prophet asked two questions which show that, he is, that this is no joke and his coming is not a small matter. The rhetorical question suggests that the answer that one will be able to do so, that, that no one will be able to do so, no one will endure, implies a searching ordeal that no one will be able to cope with. So the day of the Lord is great, but it's also dreadful. Who can endure it? Joel chapter 2 verse 11 says, and, and, and you know to stand here does not mean to simply appear. It's particularly to stand the ground like the military. It's not just to appear before the magistrate and answer questions and go. It's to, to stand with your army against the Lord, fighting against the Lord. So before the searching scrutiny of this judge, none will be able to maintain a successful defense. If you, O oh Lord, the psalmist would say, if you, O oh Lord, could mark our iniquities, who could stand? In Psalm 130, verse 3. But what are the attributes of the messenger of the Lord from the text? Three here. He's told that, we are told that he's like a refiner's fire. The message of the covenant is compared to a refiner's fire. You know, fire is used to melt the ore of the gold. Since the two have different melting points. The dross is consumed by the fire and the gold is rid of it so that it is purified. So fire has that effect, double effect both of consuming and of refining. Our faith is compared to gold by Peter. And we're told that our faith is more precious than gold that perishes. The Bible says so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to resort in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's there in 1 Peter 1.7. 1, 
So he is like the refiner's fire, but he is also like the like a fuller's soap. Refiners and launderers do not destroy, or do they? Yes? Do refiners and the launderers destroy? No, they purify. They improve the value. They clean. So the Lord takes action to make his people acceptable to himself. And this is fulfilled in what Christ does for the church. Where the Bible says that he loves the church. And what does he do in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 to 27? He cleanses her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. So all ungodliness will be removed like stains washed from a garment, because he is like the fuller's soap. And you might say, but wait a minute, soaps as we know them today have not yet been invented. Yes, as we know them today. But, they had leaves, they used ash, they used baking uh, uh, soda ash to soda ash to, 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 to wash. So there was such a thing as um, soap or whatever they call soap. But he is also compared to a refiner's, uh, a refiner and a purifier. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, verse 3. And interesting that he is to sit, indicating that it was a process requiring considerable care. The silversmith of the time sat looking into their small metal furnaces to determine from the color of the metal if it was pure. It was more technically intricate than the process used for gold. For gold, it was basically heat and separate. But for silver, it was heat until the dross was gone and the silver was as clear as a mirror in its liquid state. When the silver ore is molten, it gives off oxygen. It was then treated with charcoal to prevent it reoxidizing when it cooled back. And if it did, it would lose its luster, to not be very shiny. So the process of purifying was complete when the, all the dross was burnt away and when suddenly the silver became a liquid mirror in which the refiner could see his own reflection. So you needed to sit for that process to take place. The Bible is very, uh, very, very truthfully written. Those characteristics of the messenger of the covenant tells you that the work of the covenant, the message of the covenant is more than those who are in the covenant. In other words, he does everything for them to be acceptable into the covenant. It's by grace alone. He is not saying, well, I will sit there 
And you will be doing A, B, C, D, which I will approve or disapprove. Everything, and if you look at the, all these characteristics, whether like a refiner's fire, what does the thing being burnt do? Everything is being done upon it, isn't it? What about the soap? Uh, if he is like the fuller soap, what does the cloth that is dirty do for it to be clean? Yes? Nothing. If he is like the refiner and the purifier, what does the silver do for it to be refined? Really, it all depends on the refiner and the purifier. So, so again, you see that the work of salvation, the work of redemption, the covenant, the new covenant in his blood is all the meritorious work of the Lord and nothing of ourselves. We are not included in the covenant because we've done A, B, C, D. It's all the work of grace, God's grace. And what is his ministry? What is the ministry of the messenger? Verse 4. Then the offering of Jude and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. That's the first thing, purifying the Levites. Then the Levites are presented as the objects of his purifying work. They are not distinguished from the priests who are engaged in the service of the Lord in his temple. So we can take this to mean that both the Levites and the priests will be purified. Because this purification is realized by the work of Christ, the messenger of the covenant, who purifies for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Remember that from Titus 2.14? So the Levites are a symbolic of the cleansed and sanctified church. Because we are told, what are we? We are what? Holy priesthood in 1 Peter 2.5. We are the royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2.9. We are the priest of God and of Christ in Revelation chapter 20 verse 6. So this purification is effected through the trials the Lord's people now have to undergo. Because 1 Peter 1.6-7 says that we count it all joy. When we fall into trials of various kinds. James 1, 2-4. But we know that the testing of our faith does produce what? Stenfastness. So that we may be perfect and complete. Pure, lacking in nothing. Then we are told that uh, not only will be the Levites uh, clean or purified, but also the, the, the offering, the sacrifice will be pleasing to the Lord. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is what they will be doing always and habitually. Bringing, pleasing, and acceptable offerings to the Lord. So the Bible says, offer right sacrifices. Literally, trust in the Lord in, in Psalm chapter 4 verse 5. Shows the link with faith that was required. The sacrifices of, of the Lord, what are they? One, a broken spirit, because a broken spirit in a contrite heart, God says, he will not despise. 
then there will be righteous sacrifice, sacrifices, world burnt offerings to delight you. It's there in uh, Psalm 51, verse 17 and 19. This is now achieved by the church as the priesthood of Christ, offering their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Romans 12, 1. The unceasing sacrifices of praise, which is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Confessing his name there in Hebrews 13, 15. And bringing spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 5. Then the offerings of Jude and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days, verse 4 says. And pleasing here can be translated acceptable. And it indicates what is sweet or satisfying. For Jude and Jerusalem, you can see chapter 2 verse 11, uh, where we are told that Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Because Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And that's what they were. And then we all of a sudden hear the Lord intervenes and they are purified. And they become very, very acceptable to God. Before they were faithless and abominable, profaning the sanctuary of the Lord. But now they've become very, very refined. Clearly, they too have undergone a similar refining process, and therefore, what they bring to the Lord is pleasing to Him. As in days gone by, as in former years. Uh, this takes us back to the brightest periods of Israel's history, the time of the Exodus, uh, like chapter 63 of Isaiah says, or uh, times of David, Amos 9.11. So the spirit of the faith and devotion to the Lord was what God desired. So then I ask you, you know, you came to church today to worship. How did you prepare yourself yesterday? And how did you prepare yourself even last night and this morning? The Lord says that he desires that the man should pray in every place, lifting up Holy hands without anger or quarreling. How much did we repent of our sins? We didn't need to bring any sacrifice, any oblation to be cleansed. We didn't need to come with a burnt offering. You just needed to humble yourself because the sacrifices of the Lord are a humble heart and a contrite spirit which the Lord will not despise. We need to make it a habit. Whenever we gather, we come together for worship. To approach the worship of God with reverence and with awe, because we know that God is a consuming fire. Repent of your sins before you approach the Lord God, so that you may be able to lift up holy hands. And finally, what is the fruit of the ministry of the messenger there in verse 5? First of all, the Lord, when he is pleased with the sacrifices, he will draw near. The Lord will draw near. But what will he draw near to do? For, yes? For judgment. Why is that important? What was the accusation in verse 17? 
God was approving, even delighting in the evildoers. And now God, in answer to their prayers, what will he do when they follow the, uh, the, the, the way of the message of the covenant? What will he do? He will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, which means that there were sorcerers amongst them, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired hands. So the Lord will come for judgment. Did they want God's justice? Yeah, it is. Do they not realize that they had threatened this covenant? It's going to be a time of judgment. He will judge them. Then look at what he will do. Secondly, the Lord will be a swift witness against the sinners. He will testify against indicating that the Lord is a witness of everything. And so he will be like a prosecution witness as well as a prosecutor as well as a judge all at once. No other witness is needed because no other is competent. And as Psalm 50 reminded them, the summons of the Lord to gather his covenant people need not to be, need, need not to, be to, to commend them. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. What God said. And then we see here that several categories of, of offenders are identified. And if you look at the, at the uh, tense of the verbs, you will see that they are participles used here in language in Hebrew to indicate that this was not a matter of once falling into this sin, this is what they were doing continually. It was habitual indulgence. And what were they doing? Believe it or not, amongst God's people in, in Israel, there were sorcerers. Now, if you, if you interview an average millennial, they will tell you, ah, good old child. Isn't it? Well, I ask you, what about the Bible? Do you think the Bible can say that there is such a thing as sorcering, whatever that is, and you say there isn't? It was there in Egypt. I mean, it was there in Africa. Pharaoh had sorcerers and magicians and enchanters. And all the rest of them, some of them, you don't know what they really used to do. But you remember Joseph saying to his own brothers, do you not know a man like me would know how to do those magical things and deal with you when you stole my cup? Joseph said that. Which means that uh, witchcraft was not so far from, it was accessible to Joseph. So it's very easy for us to say there is nothing like witchcraft, there is nothing like sorcerers. Bible says, and actually God is against it. And you read Revelation and it says there will be some people outside heaven because they were sorcerers. 
Well, they were even cowards there. They're put in the same category. They perpetuated ancient superstitions of the land. These witchcraft and sorcerers were all forbidden in Israel. Look at Exodus 22, verse 18, and Leviticus 20, verse 7, and Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. Please don't say that there are, are no sorcerers. They are there. And witch doctors, they exist. just that you are ignorant of their ways, but they exist. But the good news is that they cannot, they cannot harm a child of God because no weapon fashioned against you who is a believer can prosper. And this is one of the reasons why people need to be Christians. This is why our children need to be Christians because though the sorcerer cannot harm a believer, he can harm a believer's child. Especially if the child, if the, if the parent is not vigilant in prayer for his children, in case you didn't know. Parents need to be praying for their children and, and asking the Lord to protect them from the wickedness of the world, including sorcerers. I know it just came from Shags. Have you been praying for your children? It's not a joke. This is a serious matter. And this is why you need to work harder teaching them the word of God and bringing them to the fold of Christ so that they may be able to put on the whole armor of God so that they may be able to resist every scheme and the wile of the enemy. And then there are adulterers. You realize that you cannot, you cannot sustain your argument that there are no sorcerers because they are listed among, uh, together with adulterers. So clearly this exists. So adulterers, those who had sexual relations with the wife or fiancée of another man, this, this is all forbidden in Exodus 20 verse 14. Deuteronomy 5.18, and both parties are to be put to death. Leviticus 20 verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22 verse 22. And then you have pejorers or liars. Those who swear falsely. Well, those who swore falsely in the name of God. This sin might on occasion be atoned for in Leviticus 5, 4, 6, 1 to 7. Perhaps here it reflects on the extent to which they were untrue to their marriage vows in chapter 2, verse 10, 16. But please, lying is not a small sin. Lying is not a small sin. How easily we you know, we say, yeah, lying. But really, we want to say, it's not so serious. God will understand. Please. He says that he will draw near to you for judgment, and he will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. 
Yeah, I feel like saying that uh, all those who took the oath of office and have not acted according to their commitment to the Constitution are being condemned here. They swore falsely, and God is against them. And not just that, but we are also seeing the oppression of the hired workers in our land. God is against that. When people go to work, Monday they wake up very early in the morning to beat the traffic, and Tuesday and all the month long, and someone wants to eat more than the one who is working, taking all the salary in the name of taxes, it is wrong. It's oppressing the hired worker. The Lord is against it. God cannot be happy. God cannot be happy with the present regime. Let me tell you. God cannot be pleased with them. They have, they have sworn falsely and are oppressing the worker in his wages. God says to you, I will be a swift witness against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. Then he also says, that even for the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the, uh, the orphans. You know, these were two most vulnerable groups in the society, deprived of their protector, and the main provider, they had no one to shield them and who are at the mercy of the unscrupulous people. And God says that he will intervene and he will be there for them. He will be the husband of the widow and he will be the father of the fatherless. And God had a special concern for them. To oppress refers to the abuse of power and authority ill-treating those of lower status. The other group liable to harsh treatment was the alien. They too are mentioned here. They deprive the foreigners of justice. The settler or the immigrant must be accorded rights in the ancient uh, uh, in, uh, as, as stated in the world, in, in the word of God, they must be, their rights must be respected. So to that extent, then uh, we must commend the president for this uh, visa-free arrangement that he has introduced. That's a good thing. The foreigners must not be exploited or make it so hard for them to visit and to come into a country. So then as I conclude, what does this mean for us? First of all, it warns us about getting cynical toward God. Please do not think that you would conduct the affairs of the world better than God. God, in providence, is governing in ordering all his creatures and all their actions. There is no stray molecule with God. 
when you become cynical toward God, you need to realize that such cynicism tires God and it troubles us. Malachi's message also warns us about dictating to God. Many are doing with, with Christ's second coming what Malachi's people were doing with his first coming. People are setting dates and detailing all the specifics of Christ's return in the name of theology and eschatology. But the real question is this. Are we ready for his return? Are we ready for, for the return of our Savior Jesus Christ? Or are we scoffing? To put it another way, are our hearts filled with faith? That's what we will look for when he comes. That's what you will look for when he comes. Listen to 2 Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth. And the works that are done on it will be exposed. So I ask you, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens, the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's rise up to praise him.